0: My name is Peter Rollins and I'm here at the Theatre at the Mill where we shot one of the scenes from Making Love. What I want to do in this commentary is just look a little bit at the philosophical and the theological themes that animate the movie. So we'll be basically looking at the theoretical architecture that houses the story. So buckle up and we'll get started. First up, I want to talk about the Oedipus complex. So the Oedipus complex, in a basic way, is a story about a guy called Oedipus who wants to sleep with his mother. Now, he doesn't know it's his mother, but he wants to sleep with his mother and his father gets in the way. So he gets rid of the father, sleeps with his mother. He thinks everything's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster. Now, the way to begin to understand why this story is so important in the history of psychoanalysis is to begin to think of the three people in this story as nodal points, as symbolic elements. So we have Oedipus. Oedipus is someone who is feeling dissatisfied in their life. They are looking for something that will make them whole and complete. That will give them meaning and purpose. And then we have the mother who is a symbol of that thing that will bring wholeness and completeness in our lives. A kind of return to the womb, an oceanic experience of oneness that maybe a certain amount of money or a certain person or a certain prestige offers us. And then the father is a symbol for the prohibition For anything that gets in the way of us achieving the thing that will make us whole and complete. The thing that we need to break through in order to get that which will satisfy us. And the whole point of the story, in a way, is to show us that we are dissatisfied if we don't get the thing that will make us complete. But actually, it's even worse if we do get it if we break through the prohibitions and get that thing which promises wholeness completeness and satisfaction a disaster awaits us so in the film itself we have the different actors playing those parts Uh, we have the writer who stands in for oedipus Uh, we have the woman who is the mother and then we have the husband who represents the symbolic element of the father the writer desires to be with this woman he feels incomplete without her he wants to be with her and will sacrifice everything for that the woman promises this wholeness and completeness and she in her own way gets her meaning out of being that object the more the writer desires her the more she feels complete the more wonderful and amazing she experiences life. And then the the father, which is the husband, the husband is the prohibition that stops them being together. This Complex can help us understand the difference between desire and drive that is so central to understanding humanity and central to understanding the themes of the story. Uh, basically desire is focused on the various elements in life that can give us some level of satisfaction from drinking coffee, going out with friends, uh, purchasing a new car, getting a new house. Uh, just basic things that bring a certain peace and calmness to our life that restore a type of homeostasis to our existence and drive is focused on something that promises to give us more than that to give us a type of excitation in life to satisfy meaning to give us purpose to answer the sense of lack that we experience in our day-to-day lives So in the film, the writer has a life. He's writing a play, he has other relationships, he lives in America, but these dissatisfy him. They don't give him what he believes a relationship with this woman would.
1: Do you love me? It's a pale shadow of you. It's been eating me up for three years. I don't get any pleasure from my work anymore. I don't get any pleasure from life anymore. The only thing I think about is you. The question is killing me. I need to know if you feel the same
0: way. Tell me whether or not you love me. So the desires have some level of satisfaction and dissatisfaction within them. Drive, in contrast, pushes towards something that is transcendental, something that will make our lives absolutely complete. But the problem is we fantasize what that object is. It doesn't really exist. The prohibition generates a fantasy. And the fantasy tells us that if only we had enough money, if only we were right with that person, if only we were able to get that job, then everything would be wonderful. And we're unhappy if we don't get those things, but we're unhappy if we do, because then we realize that they don't work. So a drive actually doesn't have an object. Every time the drive gets what it wants, it realizes that it isn't what it wants. The accumulation of money is a perfect example of this. If someone thinks that a million dollars will fix everything and they actually get that million dollars, very quickly they'll realize that while it might allow them to buy some things that they would like, it doesn't take away the existential uh, drama and trauma within their lives. And so they might imagine getting 10 million and if they get the 10 million, then they might imagine getting 100 million. What is required is a new prohibition, a new obstacle that gets in the way. This is beautifully expressed by a theorist, René Girard, who gives the example of a man in a rocky field, who's told that beneath one of the rocks, there is this incredible treasure. Well, after the man has lifted 100 rocks and find nothing, Eventually, he seeks out a rock that is so heavy, he can't lift it. And this story basically expresses the drive. The drive is always looking for the treasure. It never gets it. And so eventually, weirdly, we start to seek out a prohibition, an obstacle that is so big that we can continue to keep the fantasy alive, that behind the prohibition is something absolutely wonderful. Because there is something worse than realizing that we cannot get the thing that we really want, the thing that will make us whole and complete. It is the realization that that thing doesn't even exist. We would prefer not to get it and keep the fantasy alive then traversing the fantasy and moving to a different type of desire altogether.
2: here
1: will we run
0: The idea of the drive can be understood if we look at two central stories within making love. Uh, the first is the play that the writer has written about a prisoner who believes that he is condemned to death, And then discovers that actually he might live. At first the notion that actually he may survive the prison cell uh, makes him ecstatic, he's elated but eventually this unknowing eats away at his soul until he despairs and kills himself. Now the interesting thing about this play is that the drive can be associated with this exquisite suffering that the prisoner is having. It is suffering because he doesn't know if he'll be executed or not. It's driving him crazy, but it's an exquisite suffering. It has a depth to it because this prisoner will never have felt more alive. Not knowing whether he is alive or dead, everything will become more significant. Everything in his cell will take on a type of transcendental meaning. This is what drive does. Drive, in contrast to instinct, brings us into the realm of meaning. It helps us embrace and over-identify and overvalue certain objects. But that overvaluation is what gives life a certain depth and density. Another name for this is love. When we love, we overvalue. We connect to things in such a way that we will give ourselves wholly to them. The Tsar's guards ready their weapons.
1: When he hears the gunshot from his cell, writers is reminded of his own imminent death.
2: Dostoevsky was spared.
1: True. A mock execution orders the Tsar.
2: So the story isn't about Dostoevsky.
1: Before the execution, the writer had resigned himself to his fate. But now that his friend has escaped death, he wonders if he might also be spared. And then? At first he's elated. But as time goes by, his hope turns bitter. He learns that he can't bear the uncertainty.
2: He takes away at his soul.
1: He grows weak, tormented by nightmares. He doesn't know whether he'll live or die. The unknowing spreads through his body like poison. Until? Until one night he wakes in a cold sweat. He can't stand it. He just wants an answer. He just wants peace.
0: So, the writer is the prisoner in his story. He is experiencing this suffering, not knowing whether he can be with the woman of his dreams or not. But also, it is making his life intense. It is bringing a depth to his life that he wouldn't otherwise feel. In contrast to this experience, everything else means nothing. Now, for the woman, She expresses her subjective state as being like a bird who never flies because the bird imagines how high and fast she could fly if only the wind didn't exist with all its resistances and its pulls. The idea there is that she is enjoying the fantasy of flight more than the difficult reality she is afraid of flying because flying will never live up to the fantasy that flying has become in her mind
2: when i was a child i found a little bird in her garden she'd fallen from her nest and hurt her wing so i took her home i fed her i looked after her nursed her back to health but still after many weeks she wouldn't fly so, I asked my father why she wouldn't leave us.
1: What did he say?
2: He said she was imagining how fast and high she might soar. If only the wind, with all his pulls and resistances, his overwhelming power wasn't there to slow her. Instead, he said, she spent her days cursing the wind, never realizing that it was only for the wind. With all his limitation, his overwhelming power that allowed her to lift up from the ground in the first place.
0: Both of these figures, in their own way, are revolving around the drive. trying Trying to have what the drive promises and yet unconsciously realizing that if they ever got it, it wouldn't satisfy them. do now is circle around to some of the theological themes of making love and explore how they relate to some of the things we've already looked at. Now interestingly the Bible starts with a type of eatable story. We have Adam and Eve walking around a garden. They seem happy, not dissatisfied, living in the realm of instinct, in animality. But then we have a prohibition And on the other side of the prohibition, we have a fruit tree. And with that prohibition, this fruit tree takes on this symbolic significance of something that can make us whole and complete. In the biblical story, the serpent tells Adam and Eve that if they eat of the fruit, they will be like God. And traditionally, to be like God is to lack the lack, to enter into a type of Fullness of being, a oneness of being. In psychoanalysis, the superego is a voice that tells us if only we do certain things, then we will be happy, then we will overcome our guilt, then we will get rid of our anxiety. It is an inner outer voice, a voice that comes from within and yet strangely is not our own voice, that is always giving us advice about being happier, having more friends, being nicer to our parents, getting another job, always giving demands, always giving steps. Our own internal self-help book that is telling us if only we do these three things everything will be great. In the biblical tradition that is the role of the serpent. The serpent is the one who is saying behind the prohibition you can be like God. You can have that completeness and satisfaction that you lack and yet it is the prohibition that generates the dissatisfaction it is the prohibition that creates this fantasy that fuels this fantasy that creates the drive for what will overcome it in the same way as the oedipus complex adam and eve break through the prohibition they think it will be a blessing but it's a disaster it's a curse
2: There's no one here. Will we run? Will we?
1: You're stifled here.
2: Why didn't we run away three years ago?
1: It was impossible. Really? So run you ever get the uneasy feeling that no one's watching you? We want what we can't have.
2: So he didn't take everything away.
1: Maybe he created all of it. I love the fantasy of what we'd have if he didn't stand in our way. there is something scarier than a guy with a gun.
2: A normal relationship.
1: We could still run away.
2: It's not what we want.
1: Maybe normality is the challenge.
2: Maybe I'm a coward.
1: afraid of the unknown.
0: So this brings us to the heart of the movie. Uh, The husband who is the prohibition, the one that's getting in the way of their relationship is the one who is making love, who is creating their desire. The very fact that they can't be together is what is generating their excessive fantasies about what it would be like if only they were together. Contingently, these two people weren't able to be together because she was already married. But that failure starts to be repeated and becomes more and more significant until all they can think about is what would it be like if they were together? Now, this is where the husband plays a game. The husband removes himself from the game. The husband removes himself as the prohibition. He goes to bed, and the two people are faced with each other without anything getting in the way. So what's the solution to this dilemma? On the surface, what we're exploring and making love is a no-win situation. We are caught between a rock and a hard place. We're caught between depression, which is not getting what we want, what we really want, and melancholy, which is the sadness of getting what we want. This is why Schopenhauer said that human beings live in a pendulum swing between boredom and suffering. The suffering of not getting what we want and the boredom of getting it. Think about someone who is in a monogamous relationship. Uh, They're imagining all of the crazy sexual things that they could do if only they were allowed. If only they didn't have their inhibitions or if only they didn't live in a culture that stopped them from doing it. And so they get some satisfaction in the relationship that they have. But there's an element of dissatisfaction as well because they're always fantasizing about that other person, about what they could do if only they weren't shackled by the uh, the prohibitions and the laws of their community. And yet, on the other side of that, if they break through those prohibitions and do everything they want to, they discover that actually that leads to an even greater dissatisfaction and even greater problems. This is beautifully seen in the bridges of Madison County. Whenever a housewife has a choice of staying with her husband in a broadly satisfying, but also dissatisfying relationship or run away with this photographer who seems to be everything that she imagines and desires. Don't.
2: Wait till morning. That's the best chance. You can sleep out when that people hold the hotel.
0: This is the moment where the whole atmosphere of the film changes and their fantasy begins to dissipate. In philosophy this is called the death of God, in psychoanalysis it's called traversing the fantasy and in parotheology it can be called the crucifixion. It is the moment in which you realise that the thing you want that you think will make you whole and complete won't do that. It doesn't exist. It is the moment when the prohibition is taken away and you see what you desire face to face without a veil. In Christianity, this is the moment when the temple curtain rips. The whole significance of the temple curtain ripping is that behind the curtain is the supposed Holy of Holies, God the thing that will make you complete and give you the answers to everything. But when the curtain rips, you realize that it's just an empty room. It is the nihilistic heart of Christianity. It is the death of God. It is the moment when the fantasy dissipates. In this nihilistic moment, the writer and the woman are faced with something scarier than death. They're faced with the loss of a transcendental dimension, a very specific type of the transcendental, something wonderful that lies just over the horizon, something that will fix everything. At a certain moment in the film, they realize that that doesn't exist. You want me to step aside? want me to let you walk right in?
1: Let me in. Cut my throat. It's your choice.
2: God, what would the fun be in killing you?
0: You look like you're already dead. Letting you walk through those doors could be the worst thing I could do to you.
1: Do you ever get that uneasy feeling that no one's watching you? you ever get the uneasy feeling that
0: no one's watching you? While it first appears that the last thing they want is the situation that they're in, They don't want him to die. They don't want to be apart. They want to be together. We begin to realize that that is exactly what they do want. That is the fantasy that is giving their life meaning and depth and significance. It is a suffering, but it's an exquisite suffering. It's one that they continue to revolve around. They continue to want the husband to be in the way. But once he removes himself, they are faced with a normal relationship. They're faced with the possibility of something that won't answer every need in their lives. And at first it's devastating. But the film doesn't end there. There is another possibility. There's another type of transcendental dimension. And this brings us to the heart of theology a transcendental dimension that doesn't exist beyond our present lives but that is the depth dimension within our present lives. Theologically this is called the law being written in our hearts. In other words the prohibition is not on the outside preventing us from getting something but the prohibition is within us that we revolve around, that we move around in various ways. This is why at the very end, the writer says, this time, who's going to stand in our way? Because what they're doing is they're saying that they are wanting to find a way to have struggle and antagonism and difficulty in their relationship. Not that separates them from each other, but rather that brings them together realizing that it is the drive that brings the intensity and the beauty to their relationship but realizing that they need to find a way to harness that drive in its non-destructive dimension
1: What about you?
2: I don't know if I'm ready to fly
1: I don't know if you want to fly
2: I don't think you want you leave your presence out
1: So this time, who's going to stand in our way?
0: The existential dilemma that's created between the interplay of desire and drive in the human subject, an interplay that causes all sorts of antagonisms and difficulties in our lives, is captured in the opening quote of the film. The opening quote says that, There is no question of a man sleeping with a woman if he is to be hanged on the way out, for it's the gallows that make him love. What Lacan is talking about here is the way in which the very obstacle that we think we don't want is actually the obstacle that generates an excessive desire, a jouissance, for what we cannot have. The very thing that stops us is actually what we want. Because the very thing that stops us elevates what is prohibited to a transcendental level. Of the movie might seem counterintuitive or even depressing. And yet, this idea of revolving around the prohibition, of internalizing it and making it part of the relationship itself, of bringing the transcendental dimension into the heart of reality, could be said to be the cure in psychoanalysis or salvation in theology. Lacan once said, Do not yield to your desire now this phrase can be read in two different ways the first can be seen as a type of renunciation don't give way don't give in to your desire don't uh, throw yourself into that crazy pursuit of things find a way to withdraw from life and meditate but the second reading can be the opposite A type of hedonism which is don't let your desire go jump into the frenetic desire the overvaluation of some sort of object and that ambiguity is exactly I think what Lacan is trying to capture which is that we need to live in the space between those two places revolving around our desire realizing that we'll never finish it or end it but that the True cure is not to try to destroy our drive, to get rid of our excessive desires, but rather to find a way for them to work for us and with us. In theology, Paul Tillich tried to define one of the central rules of the discipline. And he basically said that theology is to protect us from superstition on one side which is the idea of God as that which will make us whole and complete, the transcendental as some real dimension out there just over the horizon. But it is also designed to protect us from a crude materialism, which wants to see the world as a flat dimension with no depth. And that theology instead is a discipline that is dedicated to helping us remain sensitive to, inviting us into a depth dimension in life in which we find ourselves passionate about reality without giving way to some sort of idolatrous pursuit of the thing that will complete us. We must enjoy our dissatisfaction, or as Camus said, we must imagine Sisyphus happy.